Heavenly Father, we come today to rest in your love for us, to rejoice in your salvation. I pray that our hearts would truly be lifted up as one to you and that you would be pleased with what you hear. As we come to your word, we pray that you would give us grace to trust you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. When was the last time that you were far away from home? Whether for school or work or immigration or holidays. I mean, you might be far from home right now. Here is not home for you. If the time away from home is a prolonged period of time, how do you start to feel? Lonely? Nostalgic? Homesick? And wishing, even longing to be back home? Homesickness, it can be mild or intense for people, especially if your time away is indefinite. I think of when I was a teenager, freshly immigrated to Canada. Sometimes I cried myself to sleep because I was missing my home. And some of you can likely relate to that. Some of you likely have had it far worse than that. But in a way, all of us are far away from home right now. And we have a kind of homesickness. All of us do. Just living in a world that is so far removed from Eden, or the world that God intended for us. We can often be lonely because of absence or broken relationships. And we can think of things that can make this world so much of a better place, and then we lament that they seem unachievable. We hate that we so easily sin and do evil against God and against one another. We wish that, we, that people didn't suffer or hurt or die, as we do. And we have this intuition inside of us that, that says things are not how they're supposed to be, and we long for things to be better. In reality, we're longing for home. Living in such a broken world can frequently put us into an inner turmoil so many of us today struggle with heavy hearts and anxiety, despair, or depression. And my question for you today is not just, when was the last time you felt this way? I wonder, when was the last time you expressed these aches and longings and turmoil to God? Because I believe he's the only one who can give true hope in the midst of our despair. And based on his word, I believe he's ready and willing to hear our hearts and how we feel. I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 42 at this time. Psalm 42, we can grab a Bible from the chair in front of you if you don't have one of your own. The last two Sundays, as we've talked about worship, both passages that we looked at have told us to sing as a church using psalms, 
hymns, and spiritual songs. And I said that while we've done our best to have a balanced repertoire of songs as a church, one area that I believe we've been deficient in here at Calvary is in singing psalms. So over this year, we decided to only introduce new songs based on a psalm. Today we're going to teach you one based on Psalm 42. But before we do, I actually want to preach the psalm to you. And actually, I'll be preaching from both Psalm 42 and 43 because I believe they go together in many ways. And I've been looking forward to this particular one for a long time now as these happen to be my favorite psalms of all. I have, they're ones I have come back to over and over and over again in my life. They have been my prayers to the Lord countless times. And so I want to share this with you so you too would have a, a song of hope to sing in times of turmoil. Many psalms have a little superscription at the top that tells us a little bit about the song's context. Here we are given the purpose the song type, and the author of Psalm 42 and 43, though not the setting exactly. It says this was written for a choir master. So it was meant to be sung by a choir. It was a masculine or an unknown type of song to us. And it was written by the sons of Korah, who were a family of musicians who served in the tabernacle in David's day. They were essentially worship leaders, as we'll see in this psalm. They're known to have written 11 of the 150 psalms in our Bible, so music really ran in, Korah, in the blood of Korah's family. Just think of them as the Jacksons or Osmonds or Von Trapps of ancient Israel. And since they ministered in the tabernacle, they likely lived in Jerusalem. However, as we shall see, it appears that whichever son wrote this was far away from home at this time. He seems to be stuck in some northern land from Israel that was filled with ungodly people. Given the imagery that he uses in the song, he very well could have been living in the wilderness at this time. And we find him on a roller coaster of emotions, just going up and down and up and down again. And a roller coaster that I suspect you've been on before yourself. I know I have. So let's read the first few verses. But as we do, just remember this is a song. So you might imagine a man maybe wandering through unfamiliar woods, singing this quietly. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You can sense this man's unrest, can't you? His restlessness. He, he longs for God. Thirsts for him, he says. He misses worshiping God back home. He's been crying because people have been mocking him and mocking God. And so he pours out his soul 
to God as he thinks back to better times. But his nostalgia doesn't cheer him up. Just reminds him of what he's been missing. So, what to do about this inner turmoil? We've all been there. What should we do with our raging and roiling emotions? What hope is there to, to claw our way out? Well, there's not much, if any hope, on our own. That's part of the problem. Because when we get into seasons of discouragement like this, we tend to turn inward. And we get preoccupied with ourselves, getting stressed over our troubles. We get filled with self-pity, bemoaning all of our personal hardships. Instead of looking outward to the only place, the only person we can find hope in. And so in verse 5, the psalmist moves from singing to God to talking to himself, but in a good way. And he says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now that verse there is essentially a chorus, a, a refrain that will be repeated three times in these psalms. And in it, I believe we can see the heart of the message of the song to us. And that's that when we are in inner turmoil, we need to put our hope in God. It's that simple. It's not that simple to do. But when we are in inner turmoil, we must put all of our hope in God and God alone. This is precisely what this man is telling himself to do. He reminds himself of, of what he should be doing instead of despairing. Like, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then, after pouring out his heart some more over the next few verses, he repeats himself in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Excuse me, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And in Psalm 43, he follows the same pattern. Desperate prayers, and then, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other translations, his first question to himself reads, Why are you downcast or discouraged? Or in despair, O oh my soul. And then he describes his turmoil as him being so disquieted or disturbed. And who hasn't felt these ways at times? And the reasons for this could be endless. I'm not going to speculate, but our experiences and emotions are, are so diverse. And sometimes there isn't even a good logical reason. We just feel this way. For me, the most common reasons I can get down like this are, are when I stumble into a sin of some kind, or I am criticized or, or hurt by someone I care about, or I get frustrated by numerous things not going my way, or I get 
discouraged by the dark state of the world around us. And things like this have a tendency to throw my soul into turmoil as if there's a miniature storm raging inside of me with, with dark clouds and wind and rain and thunder. That there is a storm raging inside is undeniable. But should there be? That's the question. And when there is, how do we calm the turmoil? Do we just let the storm rage on? If our lives are to be filled with peace and patience and joy, like from the Holy Spirit, I don't believe we should be, like we shouldn't ignore it. So what's the answer? I'll tell you what the answer isn't. It's not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and march on. Neither is it to just do our best to grin and bear it. Or to, to claw ourselves out of it. For all those, in essence, are putting our hope in ourselves. Trusting ourselves to, to pull us through or, or mustering up our own strength to endure it. Listen, we will all fail ourselves and let ourselves down all the time. Neither is the answer to trust other people because they're going to let you down too. The answer is to trust in someone who is outside of ourselves, someone who is perfectly trustworthy, someone who loves us deeply, someone who has the, the power to actually do something about our problems, someone you know, like God. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. To hope in God is more than just hopeful, wishful thinking. It's to put a strong trust in him. It's to believe that he will come through. In essence, it's the same as faith. There's an, there's an expectancy in this man's hope. He fully expects God to save him. He looks ahead to the day that God's going to deliver him, and he calls him my salvation or my savior. But if God wasn't going to save him, he wouldn't be his salvation, would he? And then he affirms his belief that, that one day he would praise him like he used to. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. Willem van Gmeren observes that in the loneliness of alienation, his faith was tried and triumphed. Faith and doubt are twins. And when doubt seemed to triumph, true faith calmed its questions. Faith answered. Faith despairs and despair hopes. You would say that you have faith in Jesus as your Savior, as your salvation and your God. Then no matter what you're going through today, do you believe that he can actually save you from it? Actually, do you trust that he will deliver you again? Put your hope in him. All other hopes are going to let you down. He won't. 
Whatever we find ourselves in inner turmoil, we need to put our hope in God. But we might wonder, well, how do we do this? I mean, our, our troubles can seem pretty big when we're in the middle of them. So how do we actually see beyond them to trust in God's salvation? Like, How do we see to the, the God who is bigger than our big problems? Well, the psalmist here was actually already starting to place his hope in God. How was he doing this? By praying to him. By praying to him. That's the first of the three main ways I think we can see hope in God expressed in this psalm. So, when we are in inner turmoil, we need to put our hope in God. How? By praying desperately and honestly. We can put our hope in God by praying desperately and honestly to him. Let's read through some of the psalmist's prayers here, starting from the beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. This shows this man's desperation for God. Maybe he was even watching a deer run up to a stream of water and, and bend down to drink. You might think of the old peaceful praise chorus. As the deer panteth for the water. But a deer... Panting for water is not a serene, peaceful scene. Imagine a deer that is dying from a drought, okay? Finally stumbling upon a stream of water. Or a deer who has just escaped a pack of wolves, fleeing for its life. Its legs are quivering. Its tongue is lolling about it. Its body's heaving. Like this is how the picture of how desperate this man was for God's renewed presence in his life. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When we go through hard times, I wonder... How desperate are we for mere relief? Or how desperate are we for God? And if we're truly desperate for him, are we communicating that to him? And of course, he knows either way. But he wants us to pray. He wants us to come and and pray because he cares about us, to pour out our hearts to him because he cares. Speaking of pouring out hearts, that definitely happens here. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In other words, his tears were as regular as his meals. He's crying all the time. And the people around him weren't helping. And they're just making things worse, taunting him all the time. Where is this God of yours? They knew that he followed it's Yahweh, but Yahweh wasn't saving him. So they, they jeered. If, if your God really cared about you, you wouldn't be in this mess. Which happens to be exactly what many people will say to us today in the middle of our suffering. Like it's something that we even question ourselves. Right? Because if we know, even if we know it's not true, it can sure feel like God's abandoned us, abandoned us at times. 
And people, some innocently and some with hostility, will ask us, how can you believe in a God who would let you suffer in this way? Why do you stick with him? He doesn't seem to care about you. If you've ever been told things like this or you've had doubts yourselves, I urge you, bring them to the Lord. Bring them to him. Cry them to God. Weep them if you need to. But don't hide how you feel. Because it's often, even in the midst of tears, that God will reveal himself again. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. In verse 4, the psalmist then remembers better days like we saw. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. It's like these things I remember as I, I pour out my soul. Pouring out his soul draws a, a vivid picture of emptying himself like a pitcher of water. And he's, he's giving God everything that's inside of him. The New City Catechism actually defines prayer as pouring out our hearts to God. That's what prayer is. So when was the last time you didn't just pray surfacy, shallow prayers and truly poured out your soul, everything, just letting it all out to God? Jump down to verse 6 where the praying continues. As my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. That likely reveals where he was writing this song from. Mount Hermon was in the north, and the Jordan River's source flowed from that mountain. But even while he's up in the mountains, he feels like his soul is down in the depths of valleys. It's, it's cast down. But, what did that lead him to do? Despair? No. Pray. Look, it says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Interestingly, it's his despair that actually causes him to remember God. It works that way. He then looks around and Observes nature again in verse 7. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. And if you have ever stood and watched or, or better yet listened to Niagara Falls, right, you, you hear the enormous roar of waters falling and, and colliding and churning. That's the deep calling to deep. But plot twist. He's not just seeing or hearing a waterfall. He feels like he's in one. Look how the verse 7 continues. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. They swept over me. I don't know if you've ever felt completely out of control underwater before. Remember when I was younger and getting hit by a wave in the ocean from behind and knocking me off my feet and engulfing me. And I went tumbling underwater head over heels. Now, even though it was shallow water, that's a terrifying feeling. Sometimes it can seem like life 
is swirling and tumbling out of control like that. So when it seems like life is chaos and out of your control, pray to the one who's in control. Pray to the one who's in control. This guy comes up for air in verse 8. They, a beautiful glimpse of hope. It says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. See, he knew that God hadn't really abandoned him. No, what was God up to? During the day, he was commanding his love or directing his love toward him. And during the night, God's presence was so close to him, he felt he could sing to him anytime. And notice what he's saying. He says he's saying prayers. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, even during the darkest seasons of his life, he recognized that his very life came from God. God was still the God of his life. That would never change. Is he the God of your life? And if so, do you rely on him for your life? Do you depend on him? Day and night, his love is true. It's unending, as sure as the sunset and the sunrise. But after the comfort of verse 8, he plunges right back into the depths in verse 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, do you get the irony of asking this in the same breath as calling God his rock? And God as a rock communicates how steadfast and immovably faithful he is. But even so, he felt like his rock had let him down. Say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Had God forgotten him? Of course not. If he had, then praying would have been utterly pointless. But the Psalms are often brutally honest about how we can feel at times. And I think that our prayers should be nothing if not completely honest with God. What are we trying to hide from the God who sees the depths of our souls anyway. The man's pain was real. So he made his prayer really real. We don't know the story behind this all, but he was in mourning, he says. He was oppressed. He had enemies. Verse 10 says that he was hurting as though he had a mortal wound. It says, as with a deadly wound in my bones... My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Whether this is figurative or literal, he's clearly in anguish over his situation. But he's bringing his agony to God, essentially asking him, do something about it. Do something. And right as he seems to hit rock bottom, look at verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Like verse 9 and 10, those are some dark verses. But they are 
sandwiched between declarations of love and hope. So while his, his current emotions are, are still very troubled, really there's this deeper trust in God that's starting to come through. His emotions are now being shaped by these stronger convictions. So things are looking up, but not totally up yet. As we move into Psalm 43, look what it says. Continues praying, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful man and unjust man, deliver me. Here we enter a courtroom scene with the psalmist asking God to be his defense lawyer. He prays that God would defend my cause, or in other versions, plead my case. It's like his, his suffering has put him on trial. His reputation hangs in the balance. Either he's an idiot for trusting God, or everyone else is sorely mistaken. And so he prays for vindication, defense, Ultimately, deliverance. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Now, you might not feel like you have many enemies today, but there very well may be days you feel like ungodly people are out to get you. Or, you, or days that you feel like people are lying about you, saying that maybe accusing you of being someone you're not. Or day, there may be days that you just feel the injustice of this world. This is a prayer for those days. Verse 2 here is very similar to verse 9, which we just read a moment ago. Just replace rock with refuge and forgotten with rejected. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So you can see, he's, just, he's cycling through despair, feeling cast off or tossed aside by God. But the key thing here is he is not complaining to other people or he's not whining to himself. He's complaining directly to God in prayer, which is allowed. You say respectful. It's God you're approaching. Don't blame him for things, but we should let him hear our hearts please in all their raw honesty. Doubt, sorrow, and fear are realities of life. Bring them to God. But all of these emotions should ultimately lead back to hope. It should overshadow all of them. Romans 5.5 5 says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the hope we have now. And here, verse 3 and 4, is where the psalmist's prayers finally take this upward trajectory, a permanent one. As he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why? <laughs> you see what he's doing? Charles Spurgeon says, It is beautiful to observe how his longing to be away from the oppression of man always leads him to sigh more intensely for communion with God. So sigh away 
And tell God of your longings, your grievances, your hope, if it is in him, will not be put to shame. Let your prayers lead you back to where Psalm 43 ends. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That chorus there isn't really a prayer, is it? Something else. It's self-talk. And yet I believe it's another key way that we can put our hope in God. And see, when we are in inner turmoil, we need to put our hope in God, not just by praying, but also by preaching to ourselves. By preaching to ourselves. We can put our hope in God by consistently, regularly preaching to ourselves. And these psalms give us a great example of what this looks like, what it means to preach to yourself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This man does three distinct things here. He asks himself why he's so distressed. He demands that he put his hope back in God. And he reassures himself that he will be saved. We do well to learn from his example there. Like, ask any counselor, and they will tell you that one of people's biggest problems is negative thought patterns or in untrue internal dialogues. In other words, we preach lies to ourselves all the time. We all do this. We tell ourselves that, that things are completely hopeless. We preach to ourselves that, that we are total failures. We command ourselves, demand that we feel self-pity or anger or bitterness. It's our right to do that. We tell ourselves that, that there's no point to trying or that we'll never make it through. We beat ourselves up with condemnation about how we've acted or what we've said. Like It's no wonder that we get so overwhelmed or irritable and anxious. This is the, the, con the sermon that just keeps playing in our heads. I love what Paul Tripp says about this. He says, No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. You're in an unending, incredibly important conversation with your soul every moment of every day. You interpret, organize, and analyze what's going on inside and outside of you. Obviously, this is an internal conversation. If you had this conversation aloud, they would probably put you in a ward. But that's why it's so dangerous. You often don't even realize that you're saying things to yourself. But you are. You're saying things to you that will shape your desires, actions, and theology. What are you saying to you about God and your circumstances? Do your words stimulate faith, hope, and courage? Or does your talk stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason within yourself that given your circumstances, he must be distant? Psalms 42 and 43 give us an example of, of challenging and confronting ourselves with truth. Ask yourself, like, what is really true? 
What does God say? Like, who is really in control and who really cares about me? Confront your doubts. Doubt your doubts, as some have put it. Speak truth to yourself. Quote or, or read God's word to yourself. Preach it back to yourself. Command yourself to put your hope in God and reassure yourself that there's good reason to trust him because he will deliver. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me say that again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And then he goes on to say, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. And defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him. Listen, if, if you learn to preach truth to yourself, I believe you can transform the atmosphere of your everyday life. I really do. And it's no fool's hope to put our daily hope in God. Because he is faithful. That's the last thing I want to point out from these psalms today. That when we are in inner turmoil, we need to put our hope in God by seeing God's past, present, and future faithfulness. Recognizing God's past, present, and future faithfulness helps us place our hope in him. The word faithfulness is, is never actually used in these psalms, but God's faithfulness is clearly in view. We first see this man fondly looking to his past and recalling how God had been faithful. Like this man had been thrilled to lead parades of praise through the streets. For God it says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. Something seemed more real to him back then. It was easier to believe. But it turns out that our faith becomes stronger after being tested. So while it may have been easier to believe in the past, his belief was stronger now. And later on, the answer to his downcast soul was to remember God, to look to the past. He says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Joseph Bailey famously said, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. And I think that's what's going on here. And he's remembering in the darkness what he learned in the light. For us, the 
most important thing we have to remember about God's past faithfulness, as well as the thing that we, most important thing that we have to consistently preach to ourselves, is the gospel of Jesus. Right? How God actually brought full, eternal salvation to earth in Jesus. See, in truth, we are all hopeless failures. We are. We're all terrible sinners. We deserve to be condemned. But that's only the first half of the story. That's half the truth. A half truth is a whole lie. The rest of the story tells us that Jesus never failed the way we failed. And that he, yet he died the death that we deserved and the condemnation that we deserved so we can go free. And while we were still hopeless, he vindicated us and defended our cause and delivered us. And then the living God defeated death, securing salvation for all who believe and put their hope in him. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. How can we be so sure of this? Look to Jesus. What he's done. He is our salvation. And he will save us again. Therefore, we will praise him again. That's the past. You can also see God's present faithfulness in the words in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Like, even right now, this day and this night, God is commanding his love for his people. You can trust him. And finally, we see the hope of God's future faithfulness. In Psalm 43, starting in verse 3, Send out your light. In your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So that's his, his prayer for it. And here's his confident hope. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. I love how after all the turmoil of the rest, he calls God my exceeding joy here. And he doesn't have a lot of joy in his life right now but he's got God. And that's enough. And if he's going to be restored to joy, it's going to be God that does it. But you see what the psalmist is doing? He's looking to the future to instill hope in the present. And we can do the same. As we look forward to what God has in store for us, for his people, and as we anticipate the glorious return of God, our exceeding joy. Notice again how the psalm ends. So one last time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my 
God. At this point, he's still waiting. He's still praying. He's still needing to preach to himself. He's still needing to take hope. His prayers haven't been answered yet. And as he repeats his refrain one last time, he's still homesick, he's still downcast, he's still oppressed. Oh, his his tone is likely totally different now. He's much more confident than he was before. As Derek Kinder comments, outwardly nothing has changed, but he has won through. Even in the darkness of our present turmoil, the hope of salvation can shine through and it can comfort even the most troubled souls, even you, even me. But we may find ourselves still in that place of looking to the future and saying, I will praise him. I will praise him again one day. And whenever you are, make this your prayer. Make this your song. Hope in God. Hope in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know the turmoil that they can be in. And you know how this is not always easy. We need your help. And so we come and ask your spirit to fill us. To fill us with hope that will not disappoint us. And will not put us to shame. Help us to trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.